This morning, uh, we're looking at Paul's summary of the whole book. Call it his essence introduction, the essence of the book. And I was going to give it kind of one week, but the more I thought about it, these words, almost every word in these two verses are so important that to skip over them would have not been appropriate, particularly because in our culture, and I'm talking about the church culture, most of these words are either unfamiliar or in a lot of ways even distorted, particularly the word gospel that we looked at last time, and particularly the word salvation, which we'll look at today. So I want to give a little bit of extra attention to those two words. Well, one of them did last week, another one this week. Just so we're clear, and I think the church in general is a little, I don't want to say confused, but doesn't have a clear understanding, maybe a better way of putting it, of these two terms. And we'll look at salvation today. We generally restrict the meaning. And as a result, there's a lot of passages that if you don't think it through and realize that they may be meaning something different than your preconceived idea, you're going to have a misunderstanding of those passages. So that's what I want to look at. And we'll probably get a little bit into verse 16. The focus in the first century of power in every way that you can conceive of was the Roman city of Rome, the Roman Empire's not only capital, but it was the focus of political power, it was the focus of economic power, it was the focus of military power, it was from Rome that the military got their orders throughout the Roman Empire. So when you think of power in the first century, you would think of the city of Rome. Well, there's a power that's greater than the power of the Roman Empire, and particularly the power that epitomized the city of Rome. We want to look at that word as well in order to realize why Paul says the things that he says at the early part of the verse there. So, We've gone through the formal introduction. We've gone through the personal introduction that ends in verse 15. We're looking at the essence introduction, which gives us the essence of the book, 16 and 17. In a lot of ways, a summary of everything that Paul is going to deal with, at least the broad strokes. Big idea there. So that's kind of the main idea of the whole book. So we'll look at that. I summarize verse 16, resource of God for deliverance. We'll see why I changed that word from regeneration to deliverance on your outline sheet. First one I sent out, I had regeneration. It's too restrictive. So I broadened it to the idea of deliverance. Now, the translations is usually salvation. So I changed it. So accuracy trumps alliteration. <laughs> so verse 16 I summarize as the resource of God for deliverance and that's the gospel message we focused on that first we saw last week Paul has I think a resolve that comes from confidence to deliver the gospel to the Romans so that goes all the way back to verses 14 and 15 where he's talking about desiring eagerly to present the gospel in Rome as well That's why it starts with four. We looked at that. 
And he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We looked at that last week. Now, I probably spent too much time on the not ashamed idea, but I tried to give you the idea that this is just a common way that we express ourselves today. The idea of negating something in order to affirm something else. So he's negating the, the negative, not ashamed to give the idea of he's proud of or he has confidence in. And we looked at that and he's, he's not ashamed or he has confidence in the gospel. And then he's going to tell us for the reason why he has that confidence. And we'll focus on that. Just a summary here, the term evangelian. Last week I had a, I don't know why, but I just was having a hard time verbalizing the Greek. Occurs several times in the New Testament, and it's used in slightly different ways, sometimes depending on the context. I gave you an idea of what that means. Basic meaning, good news, everyday usage, good news. You have the everyday usage in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6. But sometimes it's used, particularly, I think, in this context, in a more technical, in a more theological sense. And it's good news concerning spiritual deliverance, concerning what God has done, concerning spiritual and eternal things. That's a summary of what we looked at last week. The verb idea, that's the noun, which we have in this context. The verb, same idea, except it has the idea of to bring good news or to preach good news. Sometimes that's the way it's translated, preach or preach gospel. Preach the gospel or preaching the good news. So that's the essence of it. And the good news, that good news of of scripture is great news. We talked about that. Now, the reasons for that confidence, resolve from confidence, he's not ashamed of the gospel. The reason for that is there's power in the gospel. And we as believers need to be aware of this. Remember I mentioned This book is written to believers to equip us. It's not written to an unbeliever to convince him that he's lost. It's too theological for that. There are too many theological terms. So we need to understand these things so that we can be equipped and better and more clearly deliver the gospel message to the unbeliever. We talked about delivering that message last time as well. So let's take a look at the reasons for power. He's not ashamed of it, or he has this confidence in the gospel. You could even say, because. Here's the reason. It is the power of God, and you could add for salvation. There's power there. So let's try to understand that and emphasize it, because sometimes we forget, or sometimes, in some cases, maybe not even be aware of the power available. This is the means that God is going to use to convert the human heart. It's not our persuasiveness. It's not even our accuracy. It's not our emphasis. It's not our trickery. It's not our manipulation. It's the power that is inherent in the gospel that converts. In fact, when I used to go down to Mexico and do uh, seminars down there, I heard a story that I heard several times So I think true, I don't know, I didn't see the actual situation. But they used to tell me that there was a lady that was very uncomfortable in front of people or even one-on-one, very shy, 
but she trained her parrot to deliver the gospel. <laughs> and people were converted as a result of hearing the gospel. Yeah, because that, the power of God. So it's not us. God just wants us to be involved in the whole process. The power resides in the gospel. So last week we said we need to focus on accurately presenting the gospel. If a parrot can do it, that implies what? You and I can probably do it as well. And sometimes God uses even a garbled presentation as long as the hearer understands clearly the essence of what the gospel message is all about. It is the power of God. So let's take a look at that word, first of all, the word for power. And I'm using a graphic there to kind of steer us away from another idea, kind of a steady, consistent, overwhelming power. The Greek word, dunamis. Now, the word, Greek word, we get dynamo, and that would be a good image to think of. We also get the word dynamite. Now, that's not the idea of the word dunamis. It's not explosive power. That's different, different idea. It occurs 119 times, so it's quite frequent, and that's just the New Testament. It occurs the Hebrew equivalent in the Old Testament several times as well. Dunamis. It's not explosive power. It's not like dynamite. It's more that dynamo idea or that constant, ongoing, but there's tremendous power there, just like a nuclear power plant that just constantly puts out power to power all of the electrical needs of that area that is connected to that nuclear facility. So it's not the power of creation. So it's not natural power. It's not like a lightning bolt. It's, it's not like a waterfall. It, it's, it's not like a tsunami. That's all natural power. It's not the power of science or the, the, the power that science can study. It's not natural. It's not power of the mind. In other words, the ability to think great thoughts. It's not even demonic power. Now, the word is used in reference to all of these in some context, referring even to demonic. That's not the essence of the word here. And it's not the essence when God is associated with it. So we need to keep those two distinct. And what I'm saying is in this context, he's not talking about that kind of power. In other contexts, he may. But in this context... He's talking about inherent omnipotent power. It's the power of God in this context. It's not our power. It's not our persuasiveness. It's not our even words. But God taking those words, sometimes even garbled, sometimes not clear. He take he can take those words to bring into the experience of another person and convert their hearts. And it's not us. It's he and his power. That is why Paul has this great confidence in the gospel message. It has nothing to do with us. It's the inherent omnipotent power. So let's look at the usage of this power. And probably the greatest power that we're familiar with is the power of the sun itself. And you might even say the sun has its own power or its inherent power. 
But even that is derived. Even that power of the sun, God is the one that built it. He's the creator. So it's not independent of anything else. But the greatest thing that we can think of is the, the power of the sun. And just to kind of impress us, 865,000 miles in diameter. That's 108 times the size of the Earth, planet Earth. It's 93 million miles away, and we still hit, feel the, the power of it. In fact, we enjoy that sunshine on a cold day like today. And yet it's that far away from us. And light travels at a speed that we almost can't comprehend. And it takes 8 minutes and 20 seconds to get from the sun to the earth. So it's quite a ways away. And yet that power is the power that produces all of life on planet earth. Just a few statistics here on the size of it. It orbits the galaxy 240 million years. So I guess it's just in its initial orbit, right? If the Earth is only 6,000 years old. Anyway, these are just the statistics that astrophysicists come up with. Think of God's power like the sun, even though the sun's power is derived, but God's power is greater, is the point. The sun is only one, and they estimate there's a hundred billion suns in the Milky Way, and the sun is just one. God's power is greater. In fact, it's omnipotent. It's infinite. So it's omnipotent power, and you can see the Bible speaks in terms of God's power being displayed. He displays his power in many ways. Somebody look up some of these. The Most of these are in Romans. Start with Romans 1. You got Romans 1, Romans 9.17, somebody else. Okay, Jenny, Pat, why don't you get Acts 2.22, 15.19, that's Romans. Who wants to do that one? Now Paul is referring, Mark's got it. Resurrection 1.4 even. Uh, Bill, why don't you do that one too since you're in chapter 1. <coughs> Matthew 24, 29, and 30. Somebody else? All right. And we've got verse 16. We don't need to look up that one, but look up 1 Thessalonians 1, 5. This will do that one. Linda, you got that? You want to do that one? 1 Thessalonians 1, 5. Okay, 1, 20. David's got that one. The invisible things of him, creation of the world, are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even his Godhead are without excuse. And in that context, he's talking about God, God revealing himself. One of the ways he reveals himself is through the creation, in that passage, through the things that are made. He displays his power. In other words, every human being has seen the power of God. Even the power of God, his eternal nature, those things. God has revealed himself. That power can be seen by looking at things like the sun or the galaxy or the multitude of galaxies in, in the heavens, in, in the universe. You get a feel. And if you know that he's the creator, he's greater. His power is greater than anything you can conceive of. So his power is demonstrated in the creation itself. He intervenes in history 
And this is a display of his power. Is that the one you've got, Bill? Or who's got that one? Jenny? 917, Romans. Scripture says to me, for this very purpose, my power in you. Why did God raise up Pharaoh? Now here's an unbeliever, an unbelieving leader that was the power of the entire civilization of that day. It's God that raised him up. For what purpose? To display his power to show that the greatest political emperor or power of that day is nothing in the hand of God. And he displayed that gradually through the plagues then eventually through the exodus itself. And everyone in that day, they were all able to see the power of God. That was one of the reasons for all these miracles. To convince the children of Israel of his tremendous power. And that was just an example on a local level. And he used an unbeliever to do that. And maybe he can do the same in our country, right? Acts 2.22, notice the purpose of Christ's miracles. So not only does he display himself in the creation, not only does he display himself in historical events and people like Pharaoh, also the miracles of Christ. That's their design. Acts 2.22, we have a summary of the miracles of Christ. Got that one, Pat? Israel, hear these words. By miracles. Attested by God to you by miracles. The word there is dunamis. And signs God did through him. Sometimes in the Gospels, the word miracles is the word dunamis, and that's an example right there. There's several others in the Gospels that is translated in that way. The miracles of Christ were designed to demonstrate the omnipotent power of God so that people would be able to see that Jesus Christ is, in fact, Messiah. He is, in fact, everything that he claimed to be. He is, in fact, God himself. All right? So the miracles of Christ display this dunamis, this power. And then Jesus passed that power on to the disciples to confirm the message, to confirm that they, in fact, were his messengers. 1519. In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Lyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of this is Paul, but it's applicable to the disciples as well. In fact, the word is used in association with the miracles of the, the apostles or disciples as well. And the purpose is to demonstrate and display dunamis, this power. So Romans fifteen nineteen, the resurrection was a display of resurrection power, which is omnipotent power, God's power. Chapter 1, verse 4 of the book of Romans. We've already looked at that one. Who's got that one? Pat, you got that one? Or Bill, okay. Who's been declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection of the dead. Okay, the resurrection displays the power of God. We already looked at that verse. And in the second coming, we're going to have a display that every eye will see of the omnipotent power of God. Matthew 24, 29 through 30. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. With 
power with dunamis. Now the word dunamis is also in verse 29 referring to the powers of the universe and as Jesus will disrupt all those powers, the whole world will see that something unusual has happened. Be a display of the power of God. Linda. This is the power beyond geometry. Beyond uh, mathematics and geometry. Because this earth is round and he's like here. It's beyond that. Unless vision is full of sun. It's like like our concept of geometry. No. He goes beyond our geometry. Amazing, right? Yeah, for you mathematicians, you always had to go to Linda. Power of the second coming, that's the power available to the gospel. Now, it's an unseen, quiet power, but the human heart is hardened. It's bent against what God has, and nothing can change it. We can't change it. We can't change the human heart. It takes omnipotent power to change the human heart, to convert. Make sense? Now, that's what verse 16 is all about, the passage we're looking at. But you see that elsewhere, First Thessalonians 1, 5, just so that you see that. Who's got that one? All right. For our gospel did not come to you, but also in dunamis, in the Holy Spirit, full conviction, just as you know what kind of people you are saved. Okay, it came, the gospel came in dunamis, in power. The power of the Holy Spirit, that's omnipotent power. That's divine power. That's the gospel. That's what is available. So we don't have to be concerned whether people resist it. In God's timing, he can make things click in their hearts. And it's dependent upon him to be able to convert a heart. Jeremy. I think that this seems applicable, but I think about Second one seven, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but power yes. and love and That's dunamis again. Exactly. And we could look at uh, Romans 15, 13 and a bunch of other passages. That same power is the power available to live the Christian life. And by the way, we are incapable of living the Christian life without that resurrection power. Would somebody look at that one? 15, 13. Pat, you got it? May God uphold you with all joy by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's encouraging them. He's exhorting them. And he's dealing with particular issues of the Christian life. But there's several passages that speak of the power to live the Christian life. In ourselves, we're incapable. Our flesh is sinful. We are inclined. We resist what God has for us. But that power, and only that, is available for us to be able to live the Christian life. That's dunamis. So after we are converted, we still need omnipotent power. And as we trust the Lord, we have that power appropriated to us that we can live the Christian life. Otherwise, we live in the flesh. There's no power there. No power. So the reason that he has this resolve And confidence in the gospel is because of power or for power. Next in the verse, the result of that power is this deliverance. And I use that word instead of salvation to get away from the preconceived idea that we have concerning the word salvation. Let's take a look at that word. Just like we saw with the gospel, the word gospel, 
Remember last week, we said it has an everyday usage, everyday sense. Good news. Any kind of good news. Whether it be you graduated from college, you have a baby, you bought a new hat, whatever the good news, that was the way that that word was used in the first century. The writers take that word, good news, and apply theological sense to it. And it's a particular good news. It's good news in relationship to God and spiritual things and the needs of mankind. So also the word salvation has an everyday usage. And you're probably familiar with some of the usages in the New Testament. Let me give you some some, uh, passages that convey that idea. So when you think of salvation, think in terms of deliverance or salvation from physical or material or even intellectual dangers. That's the everyday usage. So, it's the power of God for salvation. Let's take a look at that term. And I use a shipwreck there because of uh, Acts chapter 27, where we have an example where the word is used, I think, three times in that context. It has nothing to do with eternal things. It's used in its everyday kind of common usage. Remember, the Bible is not a, doesn't use special spiritual words. All of the theological terms are derived from the culture with the addition of the theological sense, just like what we said with the gospel and we've mentioned several other times. Well, the term is soteria. That's the noun form. How do you spell that? S-O-T-E-R-I-A. Soteria. And it occurs 45 times. The noun is used how many times? 106. 106. Sozo. S-O-Z-O. D-Z. No. Z. Z, Z, Z. That's what Gwen said. Gwen's not here today. All right. Sorry about that. Soteria. Very common. Occurs several times. Give you the numbers there. 45 times in the noun form. 106 times in the verb form. So it's quite frequent. If you want a sense of how it's used, you want to look up all of those in the New Testament and put them in different ways that it's used, different categories. In some context, it's used in the everyday sense, a salvation or a deliverance from some physical or material danger. And here's some examples. Who wants to look up Acts 27.20? And those of you that are... Whoever wants to get that one, Dave, be ready to do 31 and 34. It occurs three times in that context. In this material, everyday sense. Also in Philippians, even the Apostle Paul, even in a theological book like Philippians 119, he's using it in that everyday sense. Okay, you got it? And we'll talk about the theological sense in the next slide. We've got... Dave, Acts 27, 20, first of all. When neither sun nor star tempest lost. Now he's talking, he's describing the, the issue of their shipwreck and their problem at sea before the ship is wrecked and they're worried about what? Dying. Dying. Physically. All right. All hope that we would be saved. 
what would be taken away. He's not talking about preaching the gospel there and hoping that everybody comes into a saving relationship. That context is talking about, we're worried about this storm. Uh, We're not going to survive this thing. All hope is lost. We're going to die physically. Skip to verse 31. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, cannot be saved. Cannot be saved. Okay, don't automatically think the word is being used in the sense of salvation from eternal damnation. It's not used in that sense. It's used in the everyday sense. They're talking about being saved from this storm, from this tragedy that they're facing. Again, verse 34, using it in the same sense. Before I pray you, take some meat, for this is for your health. I hear fall. Okay, your health there. This is to sustain you. This is to save you from starving. Take nourishment. Same word there, soteria. Make sense? You see the everyday sense? Now, in the Old Testament, the equivalent Old Testament uh, Hebrew word, sometimes it's used from salvation from an enemy army. Being saved from an enemy army. In other words, destruction of the city and the people in the city. Sometimes it's used in that way. Today, we could use it in terms of driving a car. And I narrowly escaped, or I was saved from the accident because I saw the guy in time to be able to slam on my brakes. You could use the word soteria, soteria, in terms of saving your life, your physical life. Or you might say, I pulled my money out of the stock market before it crashed, so I was saved financially, saved my wealth. So it's used in that sense. So look at the context. Now, in the New Testament, it's not used as frequently in that sense. It's used more frequently in that sense in the Old Testament because it is describing historical events relating to dangers, physical, material dangers. But it is used in the New Testament in that sense, and I gave you one passage where it's used three times. Now, hmm? the issue of being saved, that was... That's what you need to ask the question in each context that you're looking at. Now, we get tripped up, not so much with this, with the physical, but sometimes we think that the spiritual or theological always has one meaning. That's not the case. Now, we've talked about this before, so most of you are probably familiar with this. And I've used this slide before several times. Sometimes the Bible uses the word sozo, the verb, or soteria, the noun, in a spiritual sense to refer to that past salvation from sins. Right? Now, some people think that that's the only way that it's used in a spiritual sense. That is a huge mistake. In fact, not even the majority of usages of that word is used in that sense. If you were raised in the Baptist church, that's usually what you are thinking about. In other words, salvation. I went forward in a meeting. I was saved. Past tense. Done. That's it. There's no other sense. Well, that's not correct. That's not accurate. In the book of Romans, and by the way, in the book of Romans, Paul is not going to use sozo that often. He's not even using the noun form that often. Now, he's using it in this context to kind of summarize the context. And in some contexts, like this one, 
I think he's using it in a very broad sense to refer to probably all three senses. Are you following here? The word that is used in the book of Romans more often to refer to salvation in a past tense sense, in other words, the moment that my destiny was settled, the moment that I came for the very first time into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, in that past tense sense, in the book of Romans, the word is justification. Justification. And we'll see that. And we already looked at it last week right, when we were talking about the gospel. Justification, that's a legal term. Remember I said the book of Romans uses legal terms, legal terminology, the idea of a courtroom. And he's going to establish that all of us are guilty because we're all sinners. And because of our guilt, before the ultimate judge of the universe, we stand condemned. And there's no hope. We are already declared guilty. And we must face a penalty. That's the bad news. All of us need to face God and eternal separation from him because we are guilty. We are condemned. But he has provided a means of escape, of deliverance from eternal hell, from eternal separation. This is basic, all right? The Bible uses the word justification. So we stand before the judge, and he doesn't just wave a magic wand and say, okay, I'm just going to kind of overlook it. Okay, you're all right. Come on into heaven. We have to legally, to meet God's standards, have to meet certain requirements, or in this case, God has to meet the requirements. He paid the penalty for us. That's the good news. Jesus died on the cross to experience all the judgment that you and I face, or would face. The unbeliever must face his own judgment because he is not accepting the only way of escape. That is what we mean by salvation, and the Bible says you are justified. In other words, God has forgiven you your sins because your sins were paid for on the cross. And not only that, thinking mathematically, as Linda encouraged us last week, that's the negative, the removal of the condemnation, but justification also has a positive. And the positive, he declares us righteous. So we have a positive standing. That took place the moment we trusted in Jesus Christ. The word is used in that sense, sometimes in scripture. Not always. And that's the point I'm making here. It's also used, and in that case, it's justification from the penalty of sin. We will never face the penalty of sin. And it deals with future sin as well. That's a distortion in some churches, some denominations, and in the minds of some Christians. We'll never face the penalty of even future sins. All right? That's once and for all. There's also a second sense in terms of future. And the term that the Bible uses is glorification. Glorification. In other words, that's a future salvation from even the very presence of sin. When the old nature is removed from us and we have the full new nature given to us and we spend eternity in the new nature. 
That's a deliverance from the very presence of sin. Another theological word the Bible uses is glorification. Glorification. Now, there's a word that specifically describes that, but we can think in terms of this future salvation as glorification. And if there's a past tense sense and there's a future tense sense, what might you expect? Present. And by the way, this usage probably occurs, I didn't count them, but it probably occurs more often than the past tense sense, and particularly in the book of Romans. Past tense sense, another theological term the Bible uses is sanctification. So when we speak of sanctification, and all three of these words are in the book of Romans, justification, glorification, sanctification. Now, they're different words. They're not sozo, but the concept. The word sozo is used in that sense as well. Somebody look up, I should have put these up here, Romans 8, I think it's verse 30. Who's got that one? Romans 8, 30. Dave, why don't you look up Romans 6. I'm trying to remember where specifically. Romans 6. You got it? Uh, 8.30 and then 6.22, Dave. Connie, 8.30. Moreover, who and who he justified? There you go. Glorified. Now, it's a different word, different theological word, but sozo is used in that same sense. Glorification. So give the sequence again, those whom he called. In other words, God calls people to himself. Secondly, he justifies. There's justification. And those that he's justified, he glorifies. So this salvation is a package that goes beyond this life here and now. And when it's completed, we will be glorified. Linda? You know that verse, call on and you will be saved? Mm-hmm. So, 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 that's not for, that seems like you have to have that for me. And then, all through your life, just the name of God, you'll be saved. Temporal, temporal spiritual problems, issues. We need constant salvation day by day to deliver us from the power of sin. We need that deliverance every day. That's ongoing. Say it again. So the word salvation. In some context, it means that continuous salvation. That doesn't mean that we go forward in a meeting every day, right? It means that we have a need for continuous deliverance. And that's probably a better word to get away from our preconceived ideas. We need a continuous deliverance from sin, from the power of it, day by day, moment by moment. And once we trust in Christ, we receive that past tense sense. We're justified. That's once and for all. And then we need the ongoing, everyday salvation, or we might say sanctification, in order to be delivered from this particular temptation, this particular situation, responding wrongly to this particular sin. That's a salvation. Lord, deliver me. And many of the theological usages, if not most of them, are in this sense. So let's look up one in Romans, Romans 6.22. Do you have that one? Now, this is in the section that I would title Sanctification. Go ahead. But now being made free from sin. Okay, that's justification, being made free from sin. Keep reading. And become servants to God 
You have your fruit unto holiness and in the lasting life. Okay, fruit of sanctification. New American Standard translates it sanctification. Same idea, holiness or ongoing salvation, if you will. All right, so that's salvation. And let's conclude on how we receive it. And we'll expand this next week to everyone who believes. In other words, it's only by faith. Only by faith. It's nothing that we do. It's faith and faith alone. And I want to stress that next week. In fact, let's summarize it. We have the Greek word pistuo, to believe, to have faith. Today, there's a tendency to add works to it, even amongst evangelicals, even amongst some of the best commentators. That's our natural tendency. And there's this common phrase, salvation is by faith alone, justification by faith, but saving faith is not alone. I don't think that's a good statement. I don't think it's theologically accurate. What that implies is either to keep your salvation or to show that your salvation is genuine, then you have to have works. I think the two are detached. What right? is the responsibility? Well, it's separate. Salvation, initially, yeah. is by faith and faith alone. That is settled. That is completed. That is done. But now, you simply trust that Christ accomplished all for your salvation. It's not what you're going to do after you're saved, has no bearing on that. No. So you separate. So works are associated with sanctification, not salvation in that past tense sense. We'll expand that and talk more about that. But I think it's good to include it here so that uh, we have the two together. Dealing with the unbeliever, ask the unbeliever to simply trust Christ for salvation. Don't add baptism. Don't add filling out this card. Don't even, you don't even have to add saying certain prayers or certain words. Simply trusting in Jesus Christ. We need to trust the power of the gospel to convert. There's power there. Who wants to close for us? Jeremy, you've been pretty quiet. <laughs> Can't let you be quiet. Lord, we just praise you. Praise you for loving us. Thank you for your perfect plan. Shown us in your word, Lord, the Holy Spirit that works through us to accomplish that. We just pray of you this week, Lord, that we will be done, that we know that as you working through us, that it's not us, Lord. We, I just pray you be with each of us as we go out uh, to what you have for us Lord, during the week, whether work, and just allow you to, to shine out of us, Lord. Amen.